Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Josh, how are you doing today? We're doing well. How are you? Doing good, doing good. And everybody, uh, for the audience, just want to note, we're also joined by Lars Doucet, a previous podcast guest to uh, talk to Josh today. Well, Josh, howdy. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Uh, yeah, I'm interested in the big picture, economic and social justice, and uh, the inspiration, I think, for what I and a lot of other people do is the 19th century uh, political economist, Henry George. And his motto was uh, justice, the object, taxation, the means. And so I've tried to follow that and sort of you know push that out into the world. I'm the director of a 501c3, the Center for the Study of Economics, and I'm co-director of another outfit, the Center for Property Tax Reform. And what I've learned over the years is how to do this uh, social justice and economic justice uh, dream and vision and actually making it come real by uh, talking to city officials and emphasizing tax reform uh, as you know, as a, as a part of the economic and social justice picture. And we think that tax reform, bringing in the Henry George idea of a land value tax uh, works and it's worked all over the world. And of course, it's an idea without honor in its own land, isn't it always the way? But uh, Pennsylvania with the progressive movement in the early 20th century uh, saw fit to permit land value tax uh, and it started in cities like Pittsburgh and Scranton, and it's been expanding ever since as far as legislative permission and adoption. Uh, so we have a bunch of towns and school districts uh, all across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that use this because Pennsylvania, unlike uh, a lot of places in, say, the southwest or the southeast or the mountain states, is kind of aging out flat on its back, losing young people. The demographics are, are pretty bad, uh, not too much in the way of immigration. So Pennsylvania really has to look for alternatives to the usual usual. And the uh, land value tax has fit that role, especially in uh, post-industrial steel towns and steel cities that just had the, the bottom drop out of everything. They got a lot of kicks to the gut when say 30% of the city's value uh, would be one steel mill. And then whatever company in England owned it would knock it down. And overnight, everybody's taxes tripled or, or quadrupled. And so they understood when we finally came to them, hey, you know, these, these clowns in London are holding on to all this vacant land now, and they're not doing anything with it. So make them pay for the privilege. One more thing, when you said when you said the taxes overnight tripled, which taxes were those? 
the other taxes, the property taxes, and uh, which is the prime uh, source of, of revenue for cities uh, in, in Pennsylvania and most of the country. So uh, because there was no more building value, they blew up the factory, uh, by definition, then the tax burden shifted to all the steel workers who had just been fired. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was it was untenable. A lot of them flirted with uh, municipal bankruptcy. And so they decided to adopt the idea of a land value tax. And it was it was great because essentially we were shifting, you know, city spending uh, responsibilities onto a holding company in in London. Very interesting. I, I, I'm curious, Josh, you know, how did you first come to Georgism? You know, how did, how did you first discover land value taxes inside? This is the thing, you know, I want to spend a lot of time on and work on. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In, uh, in college, uh, I had a history professor and I, I wrote a, a really duff paper on socialism and how it's you know, it's going to sweep the world and this was in the 1970s and uh, you know socialist workers party and all that stuff and uh my history professor uh, mr neil dr neil said tell you what there's another social reform that was just as big as socialism and maybe that's something that you can look into and so i he suggested Henry George. So I looked into it and I went, oh, this makes sense. Uh, and so I became a fan and, uh, and a guy that eventually became my stepfather. He became a fan. Uh, and then he attended the Henry George School of Social Science in New York City. And uh, finally, after I had, uh, you know, gone through life doing kind of the, you know, trying to change the world uh, through music, art, and other things. Uh, I won on Jeopardy of all things. So, nice. I, yeah, I won fifty-five thousand bucks. Nice. This is nineteen ninety-one, and I said, you know what? I don't have to, uh, you know, knock my head against the wall anymore. And so uh, I cast around for a little while, and uh, I heard about the Henry George Foundation and CSE. And I called him up and said, hey, what can I do to help out? Uh, you know, I think this is really great. I was, I was like you guys, I was young back then. You know, this looks really great. And he said, sorry, I can't talk now. My assistant just quit uh, and uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing. So I said, really, well, you need an assistant? And the rest is, you know, history, I guess. So, hey, cool. uh, and he taught me how to do the studies. Uh, this is really just as DOS was taking off. So there were no computers in this office, so just some, you know, fairly backwards ones. And we couldn't really crunch numbers. And Dr. Cord, my predecessor, he did all of his data analysis on paper with pen and pencil. And, and to be clear that you're talking about Stephen Cord, right? Stephen Cord. And he did it all by hand, and we did. We'd go to a small town, and we'd go to the city hall and sit down and put all this stuff into a loose-leaf binder. And that's how LVT was adopted back then. Uh, and so happily, I was an early adopter 
of uh, the kind of technology like GIS and uh, data analytics that, that helps us do our job and makes it a lot more automated and helps us reach out a lot more. And, and Josh, at the meta level, what's the biggest blocker to implementing LVT across the United States? You know, is it a political blocker? Is it a, you know, like, like, and concrete, like concretely, if you had to pin it down to one thing, what is it? First of all, anything that blocks change is people are wedded to routine. They really are. They don't like to try anything that's new unless it's forced, forced onto them. That's why uh, poor cities picked up on this first because they were in trouble. And I'm empathetic. Uh, well, no, I'm sympathetic to people in government because you know we, we come and say, hey, here's this great idea. It's going to help your economy. It's certainly going to help your uh, homeowners and small businesses. Meanwhile, they're juggling four dozen balls at once, trying to keep the lights on. Uh, one of our cities, Clareton, Pennsylvania, the streetlights had just been turned off because they couldn't pay, they pay for it. The traffic lights were off. They had to let go of their police department. So that's how bad things can get. And uh, essentially, I think it's as long as everything bumbles along, uh, muffles along, as the British would say, uh, you know, nobody, nobody really sees any uh, reason to change. There's no impetus for change. Uh, then after that, it's going to be who we suspect uh, if, if I'm a land value tax uh, advocate and analyst is it's going to be landowners, uh, people that own valuable land that don't do anything with it. Now, if you know somebody has a vacant lot in New York City and puts up an Empire State Building, beautiful, great. But there's just as many, not just as many, but there are enough vacant lots right next to skyscrapers in Manhattan. And the only reason they exist as vacant lots is because they're, the inherent value in those lots makes it very worthwhile to hold on and pay a, a stipend, a, a measly you know, couple of thousand bucks a year for that lot. And so there's no reason for them to develop. And that's where land speculation comes from. So I would say that's number two. And number three, it's economics. Uh, you know, when you bring up economics, it's 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 sometimes very hard to communicate to people. So what I do is I just I listen to people. You know, I go to the town uh, and ask them what's wrong. What's wrong in your city? You know, is there anything that really irks you? And yeah, it's it's what usually irks me or you guys. It's a neglect. It's abandonment. It's a sort of a colonial mindset of uh, people from outside uh, owning the land and essentially all that infrastructure and value that's been built up is being pocketed and but that's hard stuff but if i say to a community group uh, what's the big problem here on in francisville philadelphia and they'll say well it's all these burned out houses uh, abandoned row homes and i ask them that, yeah, that, that's pretty bad. I bet the owners don't live there. Uh, and they said, of course not. It's a vacant lot. So what do you think happens if uh, a building burns down? What happens to their tax bill? And everybody knew the answer. You know, homemakers, retired workers, they said their taxes go down. Absolutely. And what happens when you keep your house up? 
What happens when you all, you and all your neighbors keep the neighborhood up and stable and safe and a happy, good, healthy place to live? And they all knew our taxes go up, which is why in Philadelphia, a lot of people never report their building improvements, which uh, should change. But that, that repeats all across the country and all across the world, really. Uh, Australia, as, as some of you may know, is really getting a grip, getting a handle again on land value taxation because of the uh, huge price inflation uh, in real estate in recent, uh, recent decades. And so they're, they're making a real effort to dump uh, the really bad taxes, the stamp duty land tax, what we would call uh, the real estate transfer tax. You know, when you buy a parcel, you have to pay 10% of the value up front. It's outrageous and it's regressive. So Australia, at least, is learning how to dump that and go to a long-term land tax that includes commercial, residential, and vacant properties. And I think it's showed, starting to show real results in Australia. They're, they're starting to turn around the, uh, the malaise of speculation or foreign ownership of land. And that's what we're trying to do here. But the first thing is indolence. Nobody wants to change. You know, these, these habits, our cities have been run fiscally the same way for 125, 150 years. And one, thing, yeah. one thing you said that I thought was really fascinating was traditionally, if you read the traditional Georgia's texts, um, you know, Georgia's that famous speech where he talks about what happens when the population grows, right? That population growth is this major cause of appreciating prices. And so there's this kind of common sense notion that land value tax, it's a solution for areas that are growing in population. But you've just laid out this entire example of places that are in decline. And pr presumably in, in your view, land value taxation works just as well in areas of decline. Um, that, that's kind of surprising to some people. So I was wondering if you could talk about exactly how that works in areas of decline yeah. and not just areas of increasing population. It's kind of a rescue strategy uh, and it's something that is implementable right now. What do I mean by a rescue strategy? Well, uh, let's look at Allentown, Pennsylvania. It used to be an industrial powerhouse uh, and it had the infrastructure to go along with it. The infrastructure that supported a population of workers in you know, dense uh, density and uh, busy downtown, all that kind of thing, and roads, snow plows. It was expensive, schools. And then the industry left. They were in big trouble. So the question really is, it's like the uh, flip side of, of a group that, that we work with sometimes called strong towns. Uh, and strong towns wonders why are we spending all this money on infrastructure when it's never going to pay for itself well hell allentown uh put up that infrastructure between 1920 1950 and 1970 it's there so you need uh a way to bring people in or back in to the town and uh by lowering the taxes either on buildings which is what lvt basically is or if you lower other taxes, like uh, in Pennsylvania, we have the per capita tax. It's an actual head tax. Uh, we have uh, a wholesale business tax. We have a retail business tax. 
uh, there are so many tiny taxes and it's the death of a thousand cuts. And so uh, it just doesn't make sense in a mobile uh, modern economy. No, I don't want to pay the sales tax. Okay, I'll go to Delaware, which has no sales tax. Uh, and so tax avoidance is very easy. The only thing that is, I think we know that you can't avoid is, is a land tax. Uh, nobody is shoveling dirt into a Mack truck, you know, in the middle of the night and taking it out of Allentown and dumping it in Bethlehem. Doesn't work like that. So it, the site value is a lot of things, but it's population and it's also the infrastructure the population has put in there over the years. And if you don't get that infrastructure paid for uh, by bringing people back in to pay taxes on the, on the land, we hope, then you're, you're gonna be stuck. So for a growing place, it's, it's a no brainer. Uh, we have uh, Mark Gloria with his uh, idealistic uh, self-made uh, self city in the desert that's going to be based on Henry George principles. Uh, you know, more, more power to him. Uh, where's he going to get the water? You know, that's, that's a good question. Uh, federal government, I guess. But if you start a brand new city, it's obvious. In fact, a lot of property assessors in, in the cities that have come out against LVT, they've said, well, you know, it's a good idea at the start of a city. Well, almost no city or community in the world ever in history has been, boom, let's go, cut the ribbon, open the city. It's an organic thing that gets built up and the value becomes inherent in the land because of number one, people wanna be there, the natural advantage. And number two, they've spent money uh, for, uh, for this infrastructure. And currently all over the country, maintenance and operations is the unspoken boogeyman of what's, what's affecting old suburbs, uh, old cities, and uh, up and coming exurbs is that we build this wonderful crap, but there's no, no plan to pay for it down the road. And the only way to pay for it down the road is to have a self-generating loop of revenue. And that's what the land value tax is. So as far as a rescue plan for poor cities, it's worked. A lot of the Pennsylvania cities uh, were able to move out of what is essentially municipal bankruptcy because they were able to get more businesses back in town. Uh, they were able to get more people moving in. Uh, and as small cities became kind of a, a, a hit place uh, to move into, uh, they, they can take advantage of that. So if you could kind of walk me through it step by step, just kind of break down the microeconomic incentives for me. So like take a place like Detroit, right? A place that presumably needs rescuing now, you know? Um, could you compare kind of the incentives of the status quo system and then talk about how an LVT might help rescue, say, Detroit, the same way it did the, these other towns you said that it, that it helped with, you know? And so I, so I can kind of like understand how it makes that difference, even if the population's not going. Yeah, in the, in the general sense, Detroit is interesting because so much of the city is now owned by the government. Uh, you know, that's, that was sort of their reflexive uh, reaction to the, the collapse of the auto industry and, and therefore the city. Cuyahoga County, uh, St. Louis, same thing. Uh, and government really doesn't have any strategies for getting that land 
back onto market. And it's sort of uh, like land banks. That's the new flavor of the month. And a land bank is going to collect the land that's been abandoned. They're going to put it together, assemble parcels, and then, but it's like catching a release. And then they're going to put that land back into the same polluted stream of bad taxes and anti-capital and anti-labor policies. So in the micro sense, half the city is owned by the government and they don't have any clue how to get it back onto the tax rolls, even though it's still, the infrastructure still serves it. Uh, and in, in the other context, what you've got is pennies on the dollar is what it costs to sit on a vacant lot and buy land. They ain't making any more of it. That's you know one of the oldest and hoariest cliches, but it's true. Uh, in Detroit, the savior, corporate savior of Detroit is the guy that owns Quicken Loans. And what's he doing? He's buying hundreds of parcels. Uh, Deutsche Bank, right after the 2008 recession, they bought hundreds of almost abandoned, almost worthless uh, lots in Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Why would they buy it? Because the holding price is pathetically so small, there's really no reason to do anything with it except to sit on it. And cities don't have time for that. Uh, people don't have time for the, their neighborhood to burn down around them uh, until they're the only house left and the rest of it are absentee landlords. Uh, I think that flipping the script on absenteeism Specul speculation is is key to the uh, to unlocking this land. It's locked up either by government that's out of ideas, or it's locked up by people who know a great investment when they see it. So you're and saying that when a city comes into decline, it basically gets this additional kind of headwind on it as people just buy land, and then if 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 the building on it burns down as you say like they pay even less property tax so like and they might as well hold on to it because it's so cheap it'll you know on, on the off chance it'll go up in value in 10 years it'll have been a smart investment now and that just keeps anyone from coming back in and improving things is that what you're saying that's what i'm saying especially about residential properties now another thing that's happened i'll use uh, pittsburgh as, as i think a pretty good example when all of these steel companies went bust and then all of the supporting industries went bust, they didn't walk away from their land. They have good lawyers uh, and they have good uh, knowledge of tax law. So most of these parcels were given to the Urban Redevelopment Authority, URDA. And I can't think of a better phrase, URDA. It's a nonsensical phrase. So this property goes from the company to the development authority, which is a quasi-governmental authority, and uh, they get a nice tax break for it on their federal taxes, actually. They get the depreciation, and if it's donated to IRDA, they have tax credits that you would not believe because you and I will never be eligible for them. So that's what the corporate side does, the commercial side does. And on the residential side, uh, yeah, you're going to hold on to it until you know the market turns or more likely a desperate you know state or, or city government says look let us buy this land from you 
and and we'll redevelop it and uh, you know turn it into a community land trust that kind of a thing but essentially the city is so desperate that they go scrounging you know behind the couch for loose change to buy these parcels uh, that are worth uh, not much money at all and they pay a lot for them to get them out of the hands of the speculators and you know and that's uh, that that happens a lot you know when when we look at the numbers uh, they are astonishingly the same across cities. You know, the numbers of vacancies and how value is essentially kept. You know, it's like holding your cards close to your chest. You're a speculator. You know how much the land is worth in a good market. So how can, you, can you quantify that for us? You said the numbers are kind of the same. What kind of numbers are you seeing in these situations? Um, the numbers uh, are a comparison of a lot of different numbers, but it's who owns the land, who owns the city. And in a place like Philly or Detroit, it's people that don't live in the area, in the city. They don't have a stake in the community. And if you don't have a stake in the community, you don't care. All you want is uh, is a, you know, some money to come back. And it, it's great for them because the, if the, there is a building on it, you can depreciate the building just by sitting there and you have a good accountant, but the building depreciates over the course of you know, 10 or 20 years. And what do uh, LLCs that own residential properties do? They sell their LLC to another LLC and the depreciation schedule starts all over again. Now, is this a new company? Probably not. Uh, it's just transferring one LLC to another and in the end, they're they're controlled by the same group of dentists in North Jersey, who are uh, you know buying land as a speculation. So uh, you also look at places where the city says we're going to rebuild the city. Here we take a stand. That's that's the best thing that these people could hear. Uh, that oh, you're going to take a stand. That means the land is immediately going to increase in value. Uh, we have in, in Philadelphia a plan to cap I-95, which is the big interstate that goes through the city. Uh, terrible desecration in the 1950s, and it is today. But everybody says, okay, we're urbanists now. We're all urbanists. So all of that land around I-95 that's going to be capped, and they're going to put up trees and birds and chirping things, all that capping is going to increase the land values directly, of, of course. And uh, that's, that's where they're going to make their killing. Also in Philadelphia, as an example, I can use, uh, we had a casino. And for years, it, there was a derelict dock, a pier, uh, that used to be you know, for freighters and for international trade, uh, sort of the good old days for the USA. And it was valued at $10,000 on Columbus Boulevard, uh, which is you know, prime waterfront now. But it was valued at $10,000 because the zoning was industrial. You know, this, we're going to bring back industrial jobs. We're going to you know, the usual siren songs. But instead, the owners took advantage of zoning. And zoning is sort of the, the unspoken behemoth Zoning trumps land value. It's one of the few things that do legally uh, because you're using the police power of the state 
to really change by by fiat almost the value of a site so this pier was zoned overnight to dense commercial and a casino was built but you know and everybody was really happy you know mugger just had a nice new source of of victims and and you know there was some ancillary land value appreciation but that pier went from ten thousand dollars in value in less than a month to I think I'm right, but to about $900,000 simply because of the stroke of a pen. And, you know, if, if people pay attention to bond uh, issuance, if people pay attention to urban redevelopment plans, and nobody does, most regular folks don't, you can make yourself a killing. So That's speculation. Well, I'll let you take the mic back in a sec here, but I got to ask no, one more question, going. which is you, you, you mentioned zoning. Now, some people say we don't need LVT at all. All we got to do is fix zoning. And you've just said that like zoning is a big deal. Zoning can trump land value. You know, how, how do you feel on the subject? If we zoned that uh, pier to a uh, million dollars, which, which the city did, uh, but it's still empty. And so the property tax that falls on that upzoned parcel, okay, instead of $500 a year, no exaggeration, you're gonna be paying $25,000 a year. That's worth it. You know, if you've got 300 of these self-same parcels all across the country, it's no big deal. It's gonna show up on your bottom line to some degree, but as long as the rate on that land stays low, it can be upzoned, you can change the zoning, but it's going to, as long as you keep it vacant, it's going to really uh, be very doable if you're a speculator. So the idea is to kick the market, let the market kick them in the ass. In other words, realize the actual value of that land by charging what it's worth. You know, paying for the privilege is a phrase I use all the time. You know, great, okay, you're sitting on 100 acres of land with, you know, sewers and roads, etc. And you're not paying anything for sitting on it. So that's a privilege in, in my understanding of what the word privilege means. It's, it's an absolutely medieval concept. And the only way we can upend that is to end the privilege or they can pay for the privilege. You don't want to build, knock yourself out, but you've got to pay for it. So it sounds like just fixing zoning is not enough. I don't think so. No, gotcha. that makes sense. In fact, I'm sure I'm sure of it because if we look at uh, the Bay Area, <clears throat> nothing's affordable, and zoning has been changing in the past ten or fifteen years, but nowhere near enough because it's still cheap to sit on the land that you keep underused or vacant. Now that's an extreme case, the Bay Area. But it, it plays out. Well, you know, it, this leads to my next question. So the Bay Area, you know, probably this is probably the, you know, most expensive, like it, city-wise piece of real estate, if you just took the whole city in the world, you know, uh, Center for American Innovation. What, what, you know, if I gave you, you know, a couple, let's say, you know, 100 billion bucks, could you go in? And you know, bribe some city officials and, and make this happen. And, and what what is what is the process? I guess what I'm asking is, what does the process look like to implement LVT? Like, 
mechanically, is it going to like city hall, going to a town council, pitching the town council, getting buy-in, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like, and how do you approach that? That that's a great question. Uh, and I take my lessons from, from history, of course. And in the good old days, Joseph Stalin didn't start out as a dictator. He started out as a punk from the Republic of Georgia, shooting up post offices and stealing money. That's how he started. So in the positive sense, an LVT advocate is going to go to a town council or a city council and start small. And we've already done that, which is why I think it's time to move beyond. We've shown it can be done. Just like, I know it's bad humor, but to you know, just do what Stalin did. Just get more <laughs> ambitious. Yeah. And, yeah. but the idea is that you ask, as I said earlier, you ask the people, what's wrong with your city? What, what do you want fixed? And tax policy is, is how we can address a lot of these uh, problems. And so uh, you get one council person on board and sometimes they become, they become Georgists. It's really strange. They, they start to see the solution in, in everything. But as a practical sense, they know that bringing in the land value tax is going to kick the land wasters off the land. And it's going to give a break uh, to the doomed, uh, to the people who never get a break, who never get anything. And uh, I, I sometimes use hyperbolic words like doomed. But you know, if you go to some of these cities in the Midwest or, or wherever overseas, the, the general sense is doom because only a very few privileged people are able to control the levers. Now in these smaller cities, which is where we start, you, you do have to get support. But in Altoona, we had a land value tax that was almost the ultimate in a sense because there was no tax on buildings. But uh, for years, they had done this over the course of 10 years you know, shifting the tax on buildings down and down. And the city manager who has is recently deceased, unfortunately, he said, you know, no one's going to even notice that this is happening until about the eighth year. Then you're going to run into trouble. I said, really? But all these homeowners are, are saving hundreds of dollars a year on their tax bills. He says, don't worry about them. Worry about the people whose taxes are going to go up. They're going to come to City Hall with uh, the proverbial pitchfork represented by a, a legal firm. And they're going to terrify the city at some point with you know, threats of action. Now, um, in, in, in Altoona, it was a car dealer, but he wasn't really a car dealer. He was a land speculator. He was a used car dealer. I'm not going to name his name because I did it once and they almost, they almost tried to sue me. But it was a new car dealership that did very well for years and then Altoona just collapsed you know the bottom fell out uh, it used to be the world's uh, leading steam and steam engine repair town well we don't do steam engines anymore so you know the whole the whole edifice fell and so what he did the car dealer is he you know kept selling cars which is you know good money and he kept buying the lots up and down uh this main street that was a feeder into what were, were built later to interstate exits. And he was in between both exits. 
And so by the government intervening and building these exits, what did that do? It created value and the value capture, he wanted to capture the value for himself, which is really how this works. You know, we create the value and some schmuck comes and takes it. And so a land value tax is intended, uh, directly intended to sort of countervail that. And after eight years, uh, Bud, that was his name, the Chevy dealer, I'll give you the last name, but Bud said, if you don't get rid of this, you know, we're, you know, I'm going to leave town, which would have been the best thing that could have happened. But Bud played golf with them, you know, with the, some of the council people. And uh, that's how, you know, that's how things work, as, as we know, politics. And even though 80% of all the homeowners saved over 50% a year on their property taxes, that was not, that was not their concern. So, so Josh, uh, Lars, go ahead. No, I'm probably going to ask the same question. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, well, let's see if it's the same. Uh, Josh, how do you think about like, like, how do you reinforce these? Like, like, how do you, I guess, uh, reinforce the walls here so that you get to year eight, Bud comes around and starts complaining, or maybe even worse case, you know, it's Steve Schwartzman. It's like private equity. And they come in and like, hey, like we bought all these times in Detroit. We're really mad that hey, we don't want this anymore. And we got a ton of money to spend. Um, you know, how do you stop that? Is it just like, you know, the Georgia's movement needs to raise a lot of money and be prepared to like go to war over these things? Like when you hit year eight, like, like, is there yeah. anything else mechanically you can do? I, I don't know. Well, um, it, that's a great question. And I think that's kind of why we're here. The Georgia's movement back in the day had tens of thousands of energetic, youthful boosters who talked about this issue day in and day out. Uh, it had a great effect on the early part of the 20th century in this country. And it, as a movement, it sort of withered with the advent of, of socialism, uh, you know, sort of socialism light in the United States. And, well, and, and like Lars said, the car, right? So if you can, if you can expand out, if you can move to oh, the yeah. suburbs, you can, you know, the, the needs a little bit less. Yeah. I mean, you can have an urban growth boundary like Portland, Oregon does. Uh, which actually just makes the land uh, much all that more much more valuable inside. And then there's the growth boundary and people skip it. They just go another 25 miles or 40 miles into the countryside and form this ring of suburbs outside of the urban growth boundary. It's uh, it, it is like Portlandia in that sense, people making awful choices and not looking looking ahead. Um, so where, where were we? I made such a great point about yeah. Portland. So, so how do we, how do we, so, so people brought this up that it's like, oh, it's a great theory, but you're, you're, you know, corrupt people are going to come in and they're going to shut you down, which to me just sounds like a general argument that works against any policy change you want to make. <laughs> like anything good you want to do is going to be resisted by some entrenched interest who's going to make a buck if you don't do it. Yes. So the question yeah. is, what does the solution look like for Georgists? Is it's like, was it just that there was the institution was so weak, there's no standing up to the buds of the universe? Or was it that there was something deeper at work? I don't think there was anything deeper at work. I mean, politics is corrupt. And it doesn't matter what the issue is. Uh, 
and maybe I'm getting on another soapbox, it's not appropriate, but the corruption of society in the United States and, and a lot of the rest of the world since the end of World War II has been growing apace. And I think that one thing that gets people back is going to get people back is the continuing localization and uh, devolution of government to lower and lower at smaller and smaller levels. Uh, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. My vision uh, is to go back to the future. In the Middle Ages, when things were going to hell in a handguard, uh, Northern European cities banded together and they st started the Hanseatic League, which opened, reopened a trade, but not, not amongst empires or countries, but cities. And I think things are going to get a little smaller and more manageable small is beautiful the, the old phrase goes and if it's more manageable people can have more input people don't have input in a lot of decisions and we have social media and we have things that didn't exist when altoona first enacted lvt none of that existed in 2001. Right. so now you can you can name and shame uh bad actors and I hate to say it, but that's often the road to success. And if there's young people out there, they love to name and shame. You know, I read the papers. <laughs> that's what happens. So name and shame the right people. And I, I think things can turn around. But um, like, yeah, just as a pushback on that, I mean, can't can't the buds of the world do the same thing? I mean, so what? Um, so, so is, is there more to it than that, though? Because it's like, what stops the local car dealer from being like, here's all these awful Yimby Georgists who are trying to, you know, these land communists or whatever they like, want to call us, you know, um, like what makes us come out on top of something like that? Is it just that the demographics are on our side or, 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 or what? Demographics are, are definitely on our side. And by that, I mean the people. The, the people's side and uh, the sort of regimented cemented structures that, that have been running our country for a long time at every at every level, they're starting to weaken. Uh, there, there's pretty much it, you know, the CDC right now is a laughing stock. That's crazy. When I was 20 years old, the CDC was like church. Everybody respected it. Nobody talked back. And now people are going, so there's that much uncertainty in the air and Bud can count on or could count on uh, nobody knowing and say what you will about social media and, and the internet, keeping information camped down is really difficult. So that's what you're saying is that it's, it's less about necessarily putting someone on blast and using a cancel mob to get the job done and more that there's no smoke filled rooms anymore where nobody will know what the backhanded deal was. Is that kind of what you're saying? The smoke is clearing. We'll always have smoke cleared room, uh, smoke filled rooms. Uh, but the I guess we can all we can all smell it now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sun sunshine is the best, you know, uh, antiseptic or, or whatever uh, sterilization medium, and light. That's why they call them sunshine acts. And you have to take advantage of what reformers who have come before you put into place things like uh, open records, uh, FOIA, uh, open data, 
a lot of the work that we're doing uh, with the Center for Property Tax Reform, if you go and look at our, uh, our maps and our projects, all of those were uh, th those city databases were gained through open data. In other words, I don't have to beg the city of Seattle for their database. It's there. It's there for the taking. And it's updated thanks to API. Uh, I'm getting a little wonky. But thanks to API, it's getting updated on a daily basis, if, that, if need be. That's really interesting because like in Texas, we have um, we don't have that, right? Like there's the, the property transactions are probably all in in um, in the real estate databases. What do they call that? Um, uh, M MLS. MLS, yeah, but like you, an assessor probably doesn't have access to those. But Pennsylvania famously is supposed to have this like really good open data. I mean, I guess Will, you could jump in on this if you want to. Yeah, it does seem to be a lot better than than I'm no expert by any means, but Pennsylvania does have to seem seem to have good uh, records in that department. Well, it's it's legal, and I think it's required for real estate transactions to be public. Texas specifically in 2007. Uh, ended the public reporting of real estate transactions. So Texas legislatures decided to lock lock that down, and that was in 2007. I didn't realize why. it was. I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah, I mean, there used to be uh, there. There's a land office in the state of Texas, and it used to have every parcel on a paper map, every county, every parcel, and then it was digitized. And it's still out there somewhere, but it's been locked down. And so any freedom loving Texans uh, should should get together with a class action suit. And the reason I know this is because uh, we've been asked to look at Texarkana and Texarkana is. Do, do you guys know Texarkana at all? Fill us in. Super like bizarre place. It was a railroad uh, depot in the 1870s. And as you can guess, Texarkana is on the border of Texas and Arkansas, two different cities. Uh, one's in Texas, one's in Arkansas. The Texas one has a high property tax and it's a much healthier community, which is what I would expect as a, as a land value tax person. On the Arkansas side, uh, most city revenue comes from the sales tax and the sales tax falls on almost everything, including food. So there's an idea to unite these cities and sort of, uh, and we'll see how it goes. This is in the opening stages, but getting the data is really tough. And it used to be easy, uh, assessment data, I mean, and it used to be pretty easy and automatic in Texas. Wait, so wait, I just was, the, the assessment data or like market transaction data? Uh, assessment data. Assessment data should have sales data too. It won't tell you, you know, who owns everything, but you'll have a sale date. Uh, most assessments have this. When was it sold? What kind of a sale was it? Was it arm's length? You know, was it a legitimate sale? And what and the date and who did you who sold it and who bought it? Mm -hmm. So uh, that stuff is out there. It's it's essential reading for any reformer. Uh, the explosion of LLCs, I was talking about them earlier. The explosion of LLCs is uh, a, a reason uh, why we need that kind of information out because LLCs are you know, shell, co shell companies, they're covers. 
if you see how many are based in Delaware, uh, you know why, because there's great tax advantages to doing that, but it also grants a lot of anonymity. In New York State, uh, I know that in the assembly, they passed a law opening up uh, LLC ownership to a small degree, uh, but it's a start. I think that's where we are in this this whole thing, along with like-minded people that want a better world for everybody. It's it's a start, and all of life is a start, and then you start again, you start again. It just no defeat, no surrender. It's been interesting what you were saying before, where you're kind of you seem to be of the opinion that the best place to start is at the local level and work your way up. So like it was interesting you mentioned the Hanseatic League. So I'm 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 Norwegian, like my from so my mom's from and stuff. And um, it's interesting when I compare my experience as, as an American citizen as my experience as a Norwegian citizen, because Norway is a very small country. They're not part of the EU, you know. Right. Um, and the, I mean, Houston metropolitan area has more people than, I mean, there's more Houstonians than there are Norwegians in the world. And um, not counting Minnesota. Um, but like, what's interesting is, is just like the level of distance between you and your government officials at the highest level in Norway is much smaller, you know, and the communities yeah. are much smaller. And so, you know, um, I've actually like heard that there's some interest in LVT there, like a government official or two has like contacted me after I did some writing over there. And I'm just wondering, um, yeah, I, I just bring those things to just kind of illustrate like the, 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 the question of scale and what what is the path you see for getting LVT in America? you know, specifically with all of our layers of stuff, of government, you know, with like the Texas Supreme Court disallowing LVT and then also at the state level, not having public real estate transactions, you know, how do you even start? Do you just have to go to a, a, a favorable other state in a favorable city in that state and work your way up there? Or how, how, how do you see it going? Given the reality is that, you know, I'm one of the only employees of the center uh, I'm one of the only employees of the Center for Property Tax Reform uh, that it, it's it's very it's it's tiny it's it's small uh, and the only way you can get more victories is to leverage the small victories. I mean, one thing that Georges will never do is you know pick up a gun. Uh, so, in contravention of Joseph Stalin, we're not going to go that root we never can uh, you know we're, we're humanistic but the idea of proving an example to another town is I, I think the way forward when McKeesport Pennsylvania adopted LVT in 1980 uh, the surrounding towns uh, of Clareton uh, and Duquesne they started suffering relatively quickly because this was during the steel collapse that I referenced earlier. And they started collapsing rather quickly. In other words, uh, all, all the demolitions kept going on uh, in those towns. Um, any business licenses would go to McKeesport because they had a land tax, it was cheaper. Essentially, you make it cheaper to do life and to do business in an LVT city. And so within three years, uh, Clareton and Duquesne adopted LVT. So you're showing, you know, the, the power of competition, you know, and I think that it, that's the only way to do it, at least at this local level. 
but again, it's got to be, we've got to aim big. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, I hope to pass on the torch, uh, you know, if you will, to, you know, an activist, angry, righteously angry bunch of people who can read some lessons from what we've done and what Stephen Cord did and Percy Williams before him uh, and uh, a lot of other places like the Schalkenbach Foundation uh, and expand it. I mean, it, there was a high watermark. Uh, you know, Australia had a national land tax and World War II put paid to that. And of course, World War I sort of put an end to, to the LVT movement in the UK. But you can get back into that. We look at the examples of, of Singapore uh, or Hong Kong, and they're not LVT per se, but they collect the economic rent of land by hook or by crook, and they turn it into investment in infrastructure or lower or no income taxes or business taxes. And that's what you do. It's we're collecting something called the economic rent which is a hard concept for a lot of people. When you think of rent, you think, oh, I pay 350 a month, you know, for my, uh, you know, for my locker room, my storage locker. Uh, that's not what rent is, of course. And so I try to communicate the idea of rent by putting it in the terms of saying, well, this is part of the tax. Well, I, we know that LVT is, is truly not a tax, but you got to roll with what the people know. So um, one way I've heard people put it is that you're either paying the tax to a private entity or you're paying it to your community. Yeah, it's it goes into private pockets and that can be demonstrated over and over, especially with the sort of uh, ancillary movement of land value capture. Uh, there's a very smart colleague of mine in Washington named uh, Rick Rybeck, and uh, he wants to change the whole terminology. And I think he's onto something, uh, calling it land value recycling mm. uh, instead of a tax, because that's what it is. It's, it's a self-enclosed loop. And if you look at Singapore and Hong Kong, they have that kind of loop of rent to public services collected back in rent. And uh, it's, it's circular and it's, it's a natural way of doing things as opposed to the millions of dead ends. Um, in, in Norway, Bergen was one of the big uh, Hanseatic cities. I just wanted to point that out. I mean, I've, yeah. been, a big, I've been a fan. I've been to Rostock and Lubau and Bremen and Bremerhaven. Um, did you know that Finland has a municipal land value tax? I did not know that one, no. Yeah, no, they're not Scandinavian, I know. But in a way, they are. They're not nor they're not Norse. Uh, but, geographically, you know, Finns will argue with you about it. You, yeah, you, I think they will. Finno-Ugraics, and they should. I'm anyway. never going to call Helsinki Helsingfors. But uh, yeah, they have a municipal land value tax. It's been around for 15 years. Estonia has a national land value tax. Right. Yeah, I have heard of that one. Yeah, it's it's small and uh, there's always the pressure of the landowners. Right. But in Estonia, it was done for a very pragmatic reason. They, they wanted to get rid of their Russian minority. And uh, that was a good way to do it. 
So you can do bad things with LVT, I suppose, as well as good things. But that's the, the interesting thing is that land is at the heart of everything and it's the heart of every activity. Well, and I mean, it's like if you're if you're applying it consistently, right? Yeah. And you're not just like targeting it towards a specific ethnic group or something. You know, and that's actually something that's actually interesting is talking about like the status quo. You know, you sometimes like we'll read a paper about um, how property tax can be regressive or, or, or land tax can be regressive. And at least in the studies I've seen, in the places they find that it turns out to be regressive and it like hits this community or this racial group more than others, um, it's usually because the assessments themselves have, are, are bad, right? And I was wondering if you could speak to that, that it's like, if you can get accurate assessments, then it becomes progressive and equitable. Yes, uh, it becomes more progressive, the land value tax. Even the property tax can be somewhat progressive, you know, the taxing land and buildings. But uh, we've done some research for the city of Philadelphia. It's on, on the website. And we asked ourselves, how can we prove LVT will be progressive? And it was actually pretty simple. We took all the taxable land value in Philadelphia, split it, split all the properties by quintiles and the bottom quintiles are the lowest valued land where generally poor areas or areas of minority representation and a land value tax benefited them by several factors as far as saying 15 percent a year savings as opposed to the very richest properties uh, in, in wealthy Philadelphia neighborhoods and also center city Philadelphia commercial districts, uh, they paid more and they paid a lot more because, so yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll send you guys out the, uh, you all out the uh, PDF because it's really easy peasy. And, you know, I've been thinking about it for years, but you know, there's so much to do, but Mason Gaffney said, LVT is a progressive tax. Yeah, but how do you prove it? And so I think it's. I, 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 I'm really interested in that analysis. I'd love to see that. Um, but just to play devil's advocate, you know, you sometimes hear reports that it's like, um, like particularly African Americans have more of their wealth in housing than they do in other assets. For instance, I've seen charts like that that I that I believe. And so some people say that that implies that land value tax would be racially regressive because. Um, white people have less of their wealth, like more of it's in stocks, less of it proportionately to their total asset stuff is in, in housing. Is there a response to that? Uh, it's the, the racial component is an economic component. If I took you to Plattsburgh, New York, we would have the same outcomes, but 95, 96% of the city are white. They're not black. So uh, if you go to Appalachia and did the same kind of analysis, the people that are going to get hosed are poor. And uh, in our eastern cities, in our western cities, uh, although western cities are, are losing black population pretty, pretty quickly. But if you look at our cities, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an artifact, an economic and cultural artifact of the great migration from the south to major American cities after World War II. And uh, in, in that sense, they suffered because they went to get jobs in the industrial north 
And really after redlining and after the Interstate Act, which demolished, I think, dozens of neighborhoods, if not hundreds of neighborhoods across the country, it disproportionately affected Black people and Black neighborhoods. Uh, we've been working closely with close-in neighborhoods in Philadelphia that are primarily Black. And LVT turns out to be a way to uh, save them from, uh, save is not the right word, but to give them relief from the real estate boom that, that's, that's driving. So your, numbers, so your numbers find that, that it does actually result in um, a more equitable outcome for, for those racial groups than the status quo? Yeah, or economic groups. I mean, to me, they're interchangeable. It has to do with, you know, who's got the green uh, and in Altoona, nobody nobody owns anything except the, for their house. They don't have anything. Uh, I mean, and, is the argument kind of that it's like, okay, so like maybe a poor black family or a middle income black family, right, might have more of their relative wealth in housing, but less wealth overall. Like Bill Gates is the single largest private landowner of farmland in America, but yeah. probably most of his wealth is Microsoft stock, you know? So yeah. it's possible for someone to be like richer in an absolute sense, but less of their relative wealth is tied up in housing, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And there's no, uh, there's no way or it's very difficult for the black community to buy in to the system. Interesting. Now, maybe we should create a new system and I would be more than happy to support that. Uh, communities based on community land trusts, uh, and also community uh, stockholding, mm -hmm. uh, community shares, that kind of thing. It, it's been done. Burke shares and Ithaca has, you know, Ithaca bucks or something. But those are really designed for, you know, happy, hippie, small college communities. But if you translated that concept into a working class neighborhood, you can certainly create wealth and wealth that stays in the community. I mean, the black community produces plenty of wealth, but it leaves, you know, that same night. It goes to the absentees. Interesting. They, they, they work there, you know, they work as hard as anybody else in this world. Uh, you know, the clans claims notwithstanding, they work harder than anybody else, but it's stolen through rents at the end of the day. And so I agree with you. Nobody's going to steal from Bill Gates because he, he owns all the cops, so to speak, uh, and he has uh, patent interests and patents and things like that, that. That's protected by an army of lawyers, and that's a damn hard thing to beat. Mm -hmm. So in the black community, if the if their produced self-produced wealth stays in the community, then they're empowered and they can end white world supremacy where they live by by making these changes, these reforms. One of the first books I ever read was The End of White World Supremacy by Malcolm X. I was eight years old and I went, wow. I was I was really moved by it. And it was, he he was good. Anyhow. Well you got any we're we're coming up on the hour here. Do you have any more questions? Yeah. You know, I Josh, I just want to recap. It sounds like, you know, like with any movement or policy implementation, you know, hysteresis really matters. So success begets success. And, you know, if there's a history of things not working, it's hard, hard to get that turned around. I, I do think we're at a, a place where, you know, 
winds will start stacking up and and it will start heading in the right direction. These things can accelerate very quickly. But it sounds like to me, like your 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 ideas about how to implement land value taxes in the US are okay, you start with, you know, what's the easiest municipality to implement land value tax in? You get a win, you get a slightly larger, slightly bigger fish, bigger municipality, you win there, and you go on up the chain until it's San Francisco. Is that correct? Am I on the right track there, or is there some other approach that's better? No, I, I, I think for what I do, you've got it. Uh, you start with the low-hanging fruit to overuse a cliche, uh, and you have this basket of fruit, and what do you do with it? You, you share it with people. You share the knowledge of it with people. But for we're working now uh, CPTR in New York City, and we've got a pretty good exhaustive analysis of land vacancy and land blight in New York. And the upshot of that is, okay, so what? Well, now we're, our next project, part B in New York City, is following the ownership. And the ownership follows the wave of gentrification that destroyed these neighborhoods in the outer boroughs of New York City. And the first move towards reform happened with a mini pilot program that we worked on with then uh, city controller or Manhattan Borough President Scott Stringer. And it was simple, but we took every, uh, not we, but a law was passed uh, and the research worked that every vacant lot that was residential north of 110th Street, I mean, I'm being really obscure here, but that's the way the law was defined. It went from a very low tax to a, a much higher tax. And in this pilot program, what used to raise, I think it was like $800 a year, or eight, no, sorry, $800,000 a year, now raises about $10 million a year. Plus, there's houses on top now. So the pilot program was tiny, and, but it was spearheaded by some powerful uh, elected officials, uh, mostly Black. Uh, in Harlem, this is South Harlem, and uh, it was signed into law by David Patterson, who was then the governor of New York. So starting small and moving up can mean a lot of things. It can mean grabbing a town, it can mean liberating a, a district uh, and giving it back to the people. There's there's a lot of ways legally that it, it can be done without, without firing a shot. Well, I, I guess just, just to collate that, you know, like if, if I gave you like a, like a, a large resource problem pile, let's say, you know, it's like $50 million today, go crazy, implement land value tax in the U S your goal is to get as much, as many, you know, plots of land in the U S um, covered with LVT as possible. Uh, what's your approach there? Is it, is it, you know, pick a, the next easiest municipality and just move up on the list. Is that correct? The next best step would be to grab, a, like I said, a district, say Washington, okay, D.C. Gotcha. Uh, or, or some sort of self-contained, you know, like a state, uh, city-state. Okay. You know, like Hanseatic. And if you got uh, the District of Columbia to do this, uh, you would be pricing out immediately the speculators because it's almost every level of tax except for federal tax. Um 
And there's an alternative to that too. The city, instead of paying, uh, having its citizens pay income tax, could pay what they would in income tax to the federal government by giving them a share of LVT. So if you think about it, it's possible. We did research for the city of New London, Connecticut to do just that. And it, it really turned out to be uh, not monumental as a project. Of course, it was voted, voted down by uh, the, the big landholders, but, uh, but we did pass in Connecticut uh, a bunch of laws that, that permitted cities to do it. But I think that if I had 50 million bucks, um, I would approach the, the community land trust idea now, which in my mind's eye is a little flawed because economics has been removed from it. You pay rent, but the rent is notional. And so the rent uh, essentially makes it is so low. It makes it essentially for either preserving farmland or preserve, preserving uh, an economically depressed area in amber. Now, if you had a community land trust that had non-residential properties that paid rent on an annual basis to the nonprofit that owned the CLT, then the CLT would, again, have a self-sustaining uh, raison d'etre, and they could also expand you know, into a scattered site model, start buying up land. That's what the uh, Georgist single tax communities uh, failed to do in the early part of the 20th century. They bought their little bit of land. And if only they had taken some of that land value and bought more land, then they could have brought about justice one plot at a time. How would you, how would you if you want to do it right, how would you do it? The uh, land trust, it would simply be uh, expansion. In other words, you would treat it like a part, any part of the uh, economy. If you have the ability for a willing, purchaser to take your money for land, give it to them. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a one off. And so then because you have a C3, you have theoretically something in perpetuity. And so you would retire that upfront expense pretty soon. That makes sense. Well, Lars. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lars, do you have any other questions? That just no, uh, no, I don't think so. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. I mean, I guess we could talk. I mean, we're, we're getting kind of late in the podcast here, but I guess we should probably ask at least one question about our assessment project. Um, if you want to, if you want to ask him a little bit about that. Yeah, what's the best tech to take there? You think last couple of minutes? Yeah, just uh, just clarify for the listeners. Um, Will and I were awarded a Astral Codex Ten grant to do an assessment project in Pennsylvania because. Um, of the various objections to Georgism, one of them is that you can't actually do assessments in real life that are accurate, separating land value from building value. And mm. my part three was an empirical analysis of the latest research papers, interviewing Ted Guartney, who's this big famous Georgist assessor, and you know some other people, and just looking at the data. And it seems like you can do it, and a lot of new methods have come out over the past 10 years, but it does seem like you need good access to good data. And so we'll talk to some people, and we put together a grant that's like, why don't we try to reproduce some of the state-of-the-art um, methods in the place in America with the best data, which people tell us is Pennsylvania, 
regardless of what the quality of assessments are in Pennsylvania, supposedly they have good market transaction data that's public. So the question becomes, um, um, how do we how do we do this right? You know, and, and what new value can we do that doesn't just like reproduce redundant stuff people already know? Like, how can we do a good job that brings new knowledge in, into the world? And it's replicable across areas yeah, of jurisdictions. Right, yeah. um, to leave leave you guys with a bit of advice, uh, Pennsylvania, or I should say Philadelphia, has really good uh, market data. And it's curated by several universities. Uh, I think Drexel does a really good job, Drexel University. And so they curate it and they also do lots of time series. And for a good analysis of assessments, you have to spread it out over a period of at least three years in, in my humble. And also there is uh, the realtors in, in Philadelphia have supported land value tax for 10 years now. And I think that they're, I think they're rationalizing both the valuations and the reporting of data, knowing who your neighbors are, you know, knowing who owns the property and being able to come up with patterns of valuation within uh, CAMA areas. And Philadelphia has a, a fair amount of vacant land sales which is, you know, a sweetener. Uh, I mean, the, the claim is that you can't separate land and building values. And I don't know if you, you know it, but in early part of the last century, every city produced parcel by parcel land value maps that were pretty accurate. And they, uh, New York City, for example, Chicago, for example, they were all on paper. Uh, it was miraculous. I, I, I have some in the archives. So this is reinventing the wheel. It's, it's uncovering something that was covered. Land value, if, if you took a realtor by the hand, any of you, into any place and asked the realtor, what's that land worth? There would be an answer pretty quickly and it would be pretty accurate because their money, their, their cash flow as a realtor is based on transactions and sensible transactions. That's why the phrase arm's length transaction is used so much. It's it's a free, fair, and unfettered record of an actual sale. And land values uh, are easily a part of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, anybody that, there are uh, authorities, uh, Ed, Dr. Mills, Ed Mills, I would say, is one that says, oh, you can't split the two. Um, I think that's, that's an assumption. It's a lazy uh, assumption too. I think I, I think I know that paper. I might have been in one of my three articles. It's like you, you you can never trust just one article entirely by itself. You know, you want to look at the whole body of the research because you can find any one paper that says anything. Absolutely, and uh, I think that using Edward Mills is is commonplace because he's well known. Uh, you know, for a land economist. Uh, people like him. He's glib. He give, he gives good speech, uh, and uh, you know you you get yourself situated like that, and nobody will ever contradict you. Uh, that's the way organizations and and systems work, as as we know. But yeah, I think that uh, Philadelphia would be a good approach. 
Uh, and I think we have, uh, it's interesting, uh, I think that the former mayor of Philly, Michael Nutter, who's on the board of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, I think he's thinking of coming back to Philadelphia to run for mayor again. Oh, cool. So oh, cool. we shall see. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll give him a pet policy to run on if he does. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that the, the Center for Property Tax Reform is soon, by that I mean in weeks, if not days, releasing a, an assessment survey uh, after having talked to assessors in cities all over the country. Uh, all I'm all I'm helping with is the uh, proof proof writing proofing. Cool. Well, uh, we'll be we'll be very interested in seeing what that has to say. Yeah, that would be Absolutely. great. Well, awesome. Well, thank well, you very much, guys. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Where should people find your work? Where where should we send them? Uh, send them to uh, the Center for Property Tax Reform, one word, .org. And for me, urbantools.org. And uh, unfortunately, it, turn, it turns out I named Urban Tools after a Finnish sportswear company. <laughs> nice. uh, but but I, got the, I got the domain. Good stuff. And, and I just domain speculation. Thoughts, blogs, uh, articles, videos, you name it. Good stuff. It's a awesome. deep subject, as you know, as you all know. Property is is in the blood of uh, every American, certainly, and and most and most people. Yeah, love it. Well, cool. well, thanks for talking to us, Joshua. I really appreciate it. Appreciate My pleasure. It. Anytime. Love to talk to you again. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.